This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! This is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, he is the gruff but ultimately approving father figure to my ne'er-do-well tattoo artist, Perry Seibert. <laughs> I'll take being Bill Burr. I there can you live go. with that. I can, I'll, I'll, I can live with that. Yeah, that's okay. That's acceptable. I can be Dime Store Standler. It's fine. <laughs> oh. Hey, oh, we're going to get into it. We'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> all right. Uh, how are you doing, Perry? I'm good. All is all is well and safe in my neck of the wor- world. How are you, Chris? We are good. We're uh, you know kind of easing into this weird summer and uh, getting ready to go on vacation. I-, I was telling you before we started recording, it just seemed prescient to take a trip far away from anyone this year. So we're uh, we're going up to a cabin on a lake and just kind of sitting in there for a week with some books. Excellent, excellent. I hope it doesn't turn into. Uh, a cabin in the woods. I would much rather have it be a cabin in the woods than a cabin fever. So <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> before we get into this week's offerings, we're going to talk about the King of Staten Island and Defy Bloods this week. But before we do that, Perry, what else have you been watching? It's been a while since we've recorded. I just saw a film that I have truly been meaning to see my entire life. Oh, really? <laughs> one that has long escaped me. And it's it's been available at many points. And I just – it's one of those things where I just – it's it's I've always just never sat down and watched it. But it was playing on TCM and I recorded it to make sure I would not miss it this time around. And it's the Sidney Pollack film from 1975, The Yakuza. Okay. Which uh, stars Robert Mitchum as a World War II vet who traveled back to Japan – uh, to at the behest of a friend in order to help him deal with uh, some uh, a bad business that's going down between this friend and and a uh, and a member of the Japanese yakuza and the reason I've always always wanted, always wanted to see it in addition to loving Robert Mitchum is at the time in 1975 it was the biggest uh, spec script ever sold in Hollywood okay it was not commissioned by a producer or a studio and it was written by Paul Schrader uh, oh, wow. So Paul Schrader was the first – it was the first ever million-dollar spec script in Hollywood history. And so I'd, I'd always wanted to see it for all of these reasons. And uh, I was thoroughly happy I, I got to see it. It is, it, is, uh, it is very much in the vein of all of Schrader's 70s screenplays. <laughs> there are Rolling Thunder, Taxi Driver, and this are all of a piece. They all have the same general – emotional arc and flow uh and uh like those films in fact i would say almost better than all those films uh it really uh you you think you know what it is and you're not wrong and then the very end the last 10 minutes of this film are uh are really beautiful and a surprise (laughs) it does not end up being what you think it is it's something else and uh, I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's, it's not perfect. It's probably not real politically correct anymore. But uh, it's a really effective piece of work, especially if you have an interest in the work of Paul Schrader. 
Okay, might have to add that. Uh, we've talked about him before with uh, Hardcore, and uh, I, I really enjoyed going back and watching that this year. So I might have to add that to my list. I saw uh, mine is much newer. Uh, it is so new that actually the day that you can listen to this podcast is the first day you can see this movie. I saw John Stewart's new movie, Irresistible, which uh, comes out Friday. Friday on digital platforms. Perry, have you? Did you get a chance to see this yet? Or I am as we are taping this. I am watching it tomorrow. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I won't say so much. Then. I have not yet as we're talking it. But by the time people hear this, yes, I will have seen it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I won't say too much. I will just say uh, I thought this was a very interesting, uh, interesting use of Stewart's voice. Um, I don't think it's spoiling anything at all to say that this is not a movie about Donald Trump, which was, you know, in Stewart's absence for five years. I've kind of been wanting him to just come out and take down Trumpism. Um, Irresistible is not that. It is a political satire, probably a little more gentle than uh, than I expected. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be cagey because uh, I, I will say that I enjoyed it. Uh, it's not perfect. But it is a very canny use of Steve Carell, I thought. And, um, yeah, it's I, I've realized I've missed Jon Stewart in the five years since he's been off The Daily Show. And um, I, I miss his voice. I miss his take on what's going on with the world because he always had this balance of very passionate anger but also tempered with a lot of humanism. I feel like there's a lot of cynicism out there right now. And uh, it's nice to have a voice that – isn't totally drenched in that. So I, I'm curious to hear what you see after it, what you think of it after you see it. Uh, did you, what did you think of Rosewater, his first film? I have not seen Rosewater. I, I oh, think, okay. Yeah. I think that came out a year when I wasn't doing the Detroit film Critics society. So I never got a screener for it. And I think I've seen it pop up on like Netflix every once in a while. Um, it, and it, I will just say it, it I, I didn't hear anything about it after it was released, so I guess that never motivated me to go back and catch up on it. Um, but yeah, I haven't heard good or bad either way on it, and uh, I kind of need to go back and see that. I always just I get to use one of my favorite phrases that I you will hear me use over and over again. It's a great first film. Okay, it's it's really worth seeing. It's it's a it's very smart. It's very funny. It deals with something very serious and still manages to get laughs within that without without denying the seriousness of it uh it's 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 quite good <laughs> i will have to add I, it to I, I recommend it highly i will add it to my list because i have been curious about it and yeah that was just a one that slipped by me and i think he directed that his next year was his his goodbye from the daily show and then it was kind of he disappeared off the face of the earth for a bit unless you watch uh colbert's show every once in a while he'll pop up but uh, exactly but, uh, yeah, I'm curious to think hear what you think of Irresistible. Uh, I'll just say I enjoyed it. it. It was a nice little comedy at a time when I needed a laugh. So, uh, yeah, that's that. That'll be I am, out. On... I am eager to see it. Have you been catching up on a lot of on-demand things, or do you not pay? The, like, I can't bring myself usually to pay the $20 to, uh, to, to rent them. But uh, have you been keeping up with any of the on-demands on the, those platforms? Uh, not, not much. I have to be honest. I, I mean, I did with uh, I did with King King of Staten Island, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, the musical completely blanking the name on with Dakota Johnson and uh, uh, oh, the high note. 
I, oh, okay. I yes, that yes. out. But uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I figure if it's worth seeing, it's going to get seen again before too long. And, it, you know, quite honestly, in my own personal situation, if I'm the only one in my house that's going to watch the movie, $20 is too big a price point. If my wife's going to watch with me or if one of my kids or more of my kids are going to watch with me, absolutely. That's that's a reasonable price for two people to see a movie to me. That's what I'd pay to go to the movies at night. But that's that's a really hard trigger to pull if I'm the only one watching it. Yeah, we did it on Trolls World Tour, which you can hear me talk about a few episodes back. And the reason I haven't done it <laughs> since is because our last movie was Trolls World Tour. Trolls World Tour. Yes. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. That will that, do it. Yes. That, that kind of soured me on that. But – we are going to talk about to uh, to keep in the well before we get there. Can I say that yeah. uh, because I want to bring up something that we, we talked about a couple weeks ago uh, and keeping in the Steve Carell vein. I did start watching Space Force, oh, which I know did. you were disappointed with. Yes, and I'm curious how many how many episodes into Space Force did you go? I feel like I tapped out halfway through at uh, episode five. Okay, I'm not that far along yet, and I like it better than you do. Okay, uh, I, I will was, say, and I'm. And episode three had me all – I'm like – the third one is the last one I saw, and I thought it was the best one so far. And so if they, if they stay there, I'm going to be real good with this. Okay. I, I think it was episode two had the uh, the monkey, and that was the one that yes. made me – That made me laugh a few times. That that bought a little, little more mileage. But uh, yeah, I, okay. I, I meant to go back and see if it got better and – uh, honestly, my wife and I discovered the What We Do in the Shadows TV show, and we plowed through yeah. two seasons of that, and uh, I do not regret anything, because that was that was a delight of a show, and um, yeah, I could let Space Force sit for a bit. Um, but I, I, I might go back. I might go back and check it out. Um, today, we are actually going to talk about one of those movies people can pay $20 to see right now. Um, this is... <laughs> uh, this is... Judd Apatow's newest movie, The King of Staten Island. Uh, this is a movie I was looking forward to as soon as it was announced, just because, I, as we've talked about before, I'm a big Judd Apatow fan. Uh, this is him working with another comedian who's up and coming, and uh, this time it's Pete Davidson. Um, and it, it's really a semi-autobiographical look at Pete Davidson's life. He uh, He grew up with a father who died uh, a f- he was a firefighter died in uh, 9-11 I believe um, and his character Scotty is also a, a man whose father passed away uh, fighting a fire and it's kind of caused him to develop a state of arrested, ad- arrested development um, like many Judd Apatow characters and this is of course the story of whether or not he ever chooses to grow up uh, so it's very similar to a lot of what Apatow's done before, but with this new persona at the center of it. And Perry, before we get into it, I guess I would just ask you, what was your impression of Pete Davidson before you saw The King of Staten Island? So um, I remember at being a, as sometimes listeners will know, I'm, I am a huge SNL devotee. And I remember an interview, got to be 20 years ago at this point, where they talked about how the, the people in the show talked about how, like, the, the era of, uh, of Sandler and Farley and that generation was the point at which the people who had been with the show all along no longer got the comedy. 
Like that was that was the dividing point. Okay. That they'd already given up music, that was fine. They were willing to accept the new musical acts where nobody they knew. But that it required a huge shift in the demographic at that generation. And for me, Pete Davidson represents I don't think he's unfunny. I don't think he's untalented. He just hasn't interested me much yet. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know whether that's generational. I don't know whether I never will. I don't know if there's something I'm not getting that I'm supposed to. Uh, he has made me laugh. He does not make me laugh all the time, but that's my own prejudice on the show. I like actual actors, and he's not. At least he has not been on SNL. I'm not talking about his performance here. Uh, he's not a sketch actor by any means. He's a stand-up comic. That's what he is. That's what he does. And he is, he is for my money, objectively, he's good at that. Uh, and so I was very eager uh, to see what would happen with Apatow sh- shaping material for him. Because let's face it, Judd Apatow is, first and foremost, a fantastic comedy writer. And through the ages, that's what comedy writers do. They find that they, they can write to the voice of a particular comic. That's why he has been so successful so far. <laughs> and uh, for my money, he's done it here very well yet again. I, I think we're actually on the same page with Pete Davidson. Um, there, I, I referred to him in my, uh, in my review of this, uh, that I had always seen him as the Dollar General version of Adam Sandler. Um, it, he really fills kind of that same role that Adam Sandler filled when I was you know, a teenager watching SNL, which is my parents didn't understand him. They, they were like, who is this guy? Why is he talking this way and singing these songs? And I thought he was hilarious. Um, and now I understand how my parents felt because like you, I, I've, I've struggled to really connect with his comedy. I, not enough where I could say, I don't think he's talented, but whatever he's been doing just hasn't clicked with me. Um, there's always a joke tied to his tabloid life. Like the, the big joke is, can you believe I'm still on this show? Um, and and it, that joke just hasn't yes. worked with me much. Um, but he has enough like of a little spark in his eye when he makes those jokes that I want to give him the credit of, oh, he's got something there and maybe they're just not using it right. Or maybe that's just a, like you said, it's a generational thing where I just don't get him. So same way, um, I think I referred to Judd Apatow uh, when we did our Funny People podcast as the most generous person in Hollywood um, because he does have this like supernatural ability to look at a comedian, understand their work, and see like exactly how to draw their persona out of it. Um, and, and so same thing, I, I wanted to see what he would do with Pete Davidson. We can start right there. I agree with you. I think he's really good in this. Um, I think he gives a very natural and very sympathetic performance that doesn't skimp on the fact that his character is not always a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, he, you know, he, I, I don't, I don't have any idea what he is as an actor. I still have no idea, but given material shaped to him, he was fantastic. And I, I don't mean a word worthy. I don't mean he's blowing the doors down, doing something I've never seen before. But he's he's rock solid here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same goes for Bill Burr, who is an utter surprise to me <laughs> as the other male lead. Almost a bigger surprise to me. I wouldn't have expected Bill Burr 
to pull off something this heavy uh, with such with such skill. Like I could see Bill Burr getting other work off this. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> batting down the doors waiting to cast B. Davidson in something that wasn't you know fashioned to him. Uh, but yeah, both he and Bill Burr uh, complete surprises in the best possible way. I felt the exact same way about Bill Burr. Uh, when I turned off this movie, I, I think I tweeted out right away. I'm like, I want to see Apatow put put Bill Burr at the center of whatever he does next. Um, because it's really, <laughs> it's a performance that in a lot of movies would be this one note. He's the, you know, he's the heavy. He's the new father figure who starts dating Scott's mom. And th- there's a way that usually goes. There's, there's It's a tough guy who he has to get around or they they bond and there's a little more dimension to that here than you get in a typical comedy um what's interesting is watching bill burr play that character in a number of different settings because he is he is one way when he's with marissa tomei who plays scotty's mom he's another way when he is talking to scotty just one-on-one and he's another way later when we see him at the firehouse with his friends um and his co-workers he, he like i think bill burr does really good at um does a really good job at deepening that character and and showing him from different angles and still delivering a really cohesive performance so that's really funny um i think my only familiarity with him had been he was on an episode of crashing and that might be the only time i've seen bill burr do anything before um but I, I agree. I think he's very funny. And... It's The Mandalorian. I thought he was on an episode of The Mandalorian. Oh, you are right. He was in an episode of The Mandalorian. That's right. He was the uh, the space creature from Boston, uh, oddly enough, uh, <laughs> walking around space with his Boston <laughs> accent. Um, yeah, that, that is right. He was in there. I, this, this is the first time I've wanted to watch The Mandalorian oh, with the, the description of that character. I, I would kind of want to check that out now. Now you have me intrigued. Mandalorian's worth a look. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think him and Pete Davidson are both really solid in this. I think Marissa Tomei is just very likable in this. She, she just gets more likable every time she's on screen. Um, I enjoyed her. Uh, yeah, I, I mean... I think it is Apatow doing what he does really well, which is writing this material for the comedians and then just letting them go off. And there's always that complaint. His movie's a little too long. And this one might have some areas where he could pull back. But uh, he just you can just tell he wants to give that performer center stage. Just let them do what they're good at and capture a spotlight for everyone. And I enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, yeah, I I think it's even a development for him visually. This is, I mean, if you pay attention to what he's doing, uh, especially in the light of this film, you know, comedies are supposed to be lit brightly. That's mm-hmm. the point. Make it clear, make it easy to see, make it easy to hear so that everybody knows where the laughs are. And there are, there are, there are large chunks of this movie that are shot not really clearly. It was, photog- it was uh, Robert Elswit was the DP. And, and this is the guy that shot There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights. The, uh, when he's hanging out in the in the den with his buddies, mm-hmm. <laughs> with uh, getting really high and playing video games, mm-hmm. like that looks seedy. That looks ugly, yeah. purposefully so, and um, that's not conducive to comedy. And I love that he was he was brave enough. That's a ridiculous word to use, but you know what I mean. To do that, that he you know he trusted that this was going to play. We were going to let this sit in a realistic looking setting rather than light it 
for comedy. I love that the very first, I mean, do you remember the very first time you see Scott in the movie? Do you remember how we see him? Oh yeah. It's like a, it's a suicide by car almost. But the very first shot. No, I don't remember that. You see his face. He's looking in the rearview mirror. He's even thought it through visually what the film's about. (laughs) This is a character that is looking in the rearview mirror for the whole movie. Mm -hmm. And that's how we first meet him. It's a well-directed movie. It's not just that he knows how to shape comedy material, which I'm not saying you're saying he wasn't. I just want to give I just want to give Apatow credit. He is becoming an even better director, even if the scripts maybe aren't you know as incredibly perfect as the Forty Year Old Virgin is. He's really gaining skill as a filmmaker. I, I'm I'm he he excites me. <laughs> very few very few American directors are allowed to get better over a period of time. We don't allow it and. He's not settling. He's pushing himself as a filmmaker. And it's just, that's super exciting to me. No, I totally agree. I, I think the knock against Apatow is often that he makes the same movie over and over. You know, it's the slacker who has to grow up. But I think he's found a way to bring new notes into that. And I think what he does here, you mentioned the lighting that's a little raw. It's, it's not conducive always to comedy. I think this is the first time that... The immaturity in the movie, the the scene of scenes of Scotty just hanging out with his friends, getting high, tattooing each other, they they feel a little curdled. You know, this is a character who this isn't, you know, Seth Rogen in Knocked Up or or in Forty Year Old Virgin having a fun time playing with you know around with his friends. This is someone who has maintained this lifestyle well past its expiration date, and it, he kind of lets us sit just in the unhappiness of that and it feels less like a celebration or just you know innocent hanging out and more just like this character is stuck in neutral there is a grief that kind of tinges everything in this movie that is really effective that uh, I didn't expect from Apatow just um, you know the little all I also know of Pete Davidson is he's had mental you know issues with mental illness and oh, yeah. and suicide yeah. and and they, they don't make that a punchline or ignore it. They make that a part of the movie uh, in a way that I think this is this is a movie where he sets the jokes back a bit. You know, he, he doesn't want us to laugh at everything. Um, he, he wants to let that rawness linger a little bit, which I, th- I thought was really powerful. Um, yeah, I, I think it was definitely a step forward. I was a little worried this would feel like, you know, just another version of Trainwreck, which is a movie I really like. But... This feels different. There is another layer under all of this. Yeah, this is a portrait of mental illness, like you said. And even more importantly, the reaction to it mm-hmm. by everyone, by all of his loved ones. I, I like everybody's work in this movie. I, I, Maude Apatow is very good oh, yeah. as a sister. <laughs> Whether she's there for nepotism or not, she delivers. She's got a couple of really good scenes, and uh, and and she brings it. And... Everybody makes everybody really good. It's a really great piece of ensemble work by everybody in the company, including I sat there the whole movie, Chris, going, where have I seen that kid? It's the guy that plays the really short member of the group that he hangs out with. Okay. Going, I know that face. This is killing me. This is killing me. And then I forget about it because he's the off screen for a long period of time. And he'd show back out. I'm like, where do I know that from? And then I got to the end to watch the credits. And it's Moises Arias, who was the bad guy on Hannah Montana. <laughs> okay. I... <laughs> a show that I saw far too many episodes of. <laughs> and by that, I mean all of them, because my girls were the right age. 
because even he's really good in the movie. <laughs> That's why I couldn't recognize him, Chris. He was so good here where he was never allowed to be good on Hannah Montana because nobody was. <laughs> uh, the other person I really loved watching in this was Steve Buscemi. Who, oh, I, I, oh, God, yes. Just such a warm character in this, uh, which isn't always the way he gets to play. But, uh, you know, it, it was just every time he showed up, there was this uh, warmth that the movie had. And I, I really love the kind of last half hour of this movie, which I know is going to be the part some people are going to say he went on way too long with that. And I think it is just, you know, without giving anything away, it is this just warm, jovial, like, like look at male bonding. Uh, I, I guess it's the best way to put it. He just lets the characters hang out, which is what a lot of people criticize Apatow for, you know, those indulgences. But I'm like, I want to watch Bill Burr and Steve Buscemi and Jimmy Tatro and Pete Davidson all hang out for a bit. Like, I I had fun watching that. I felt good watching that. He gets a monologue. He has he has the key monologue in the entire movie at the end. And it is just a masterclass of acting because Buscemi is really, truly throwing it away he is not punching it for Mm -hmm. effect at all he is telling it like a guy hanging out telling a story it's obviously a movie moment and yet everything about the way it's shot and the way it's delivered makes it play like no these are just guys hanging out having a moment and and it is uh i i find it incredibly smart that apatow knew enough to write that speech for a real actor Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's a reason that davidson and and doesn't have that speech there's (laughs) there's a reason bill burr doesn't have that speech the reason that character is there is so that that speech can be given by somebody who really knows how to give it and boy yeah it's it's one of those moments where i just go why have we (laughs) i know we all love him but why why have we neglected Steve Buscemi this long? Why why do we not automatically have him among our 10 best actors working right now? He's so good and so utterly natural in everything he does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, where would you put this for you with Apatow? Do you, is this, I, I would kind of put this upper mid-tier for me. I, I, I liked it a lot. I, I was very taken with it. Uh, I think it's of a piece with Trainwreck. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's where he is right now. I, I'm, I'm, I have a hard time. I have a hard time ranking the Apatow movies only because I mean there, there's there's only five of them. Oh yeah, and uh, and I think four of them are very good. <laughs> so uh, you know I don't I don't uh, if I said this was my fourth favorite that wouldn't indicate how much I like it. And if I said it's my third favorite, that doesn't really even to me indicate how much I like it. <laughs> so yeah. I, I just want to say it's it's really good. It's it's I like I said I think is I'm I am it's I'm perfectly happy with it as a screenplay as a com, as a comic screenplay from him. And like I said before, I'm just excited at how how willing he is to stretch himself visually in really understated realistic ways. He's not looking to show off in some grand cinematic way, he's figuring out how to use images to tell the story better in the style that he tells it. I think that's, I think that's super exciting. I'm very curious to see where he moves on from there. Um, yeah, he, his documentaries are also fantastic. Uh, I actually, now that I think about it, 
he's done what two or three documentaries and I've only seen one, but it was two parts, so I, I guess I've seen two. But uh, his Gary, <laughs> his Gary Shanling documentary is fantastic. I believe it's on HBO right now, and uh, yeah. I need to see it. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really good. I would love to see. I think he is doing. I just read that he is doing another documentary on a comedian. I want to say it was George Carlin. George Carlin. Carlin. Yes, it is George Carlin. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious to see that as well. Um, that is, do you have anything else on the King of Staten Island? No, I think we, I think we covered it quite well. Well, you can rent it now, uh, on most VOD platforms. It's on iTunes and, uh, Fandango and Amazon. Um, it's going to cost you a little bit, but this is when I would say if if you're a fan of Apatow in particular, it's worth it. I I, I would, you know, I would recommend this one. Um, we are going to move on to the next movie, which you can see, Right now, with no extra charge, if you're a Netflix subscriber, uh, it is Spike Lee's new movie, The Five Bloods. And Perry, is this maybe the first time we've talked about Spike Lee on this podcast? Um, I don't think so, but it's. I think it's the first time we've talked about a new film by Spike Lee on this podcast. How's that? That you know what you did mention. We... Do the right thing uh, in our very first yeah. episode. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. This is his new movie. Um, it is a Perry. Do you want to explain to people what this one's about? I, I always take that, but uh, I'll, I'll let you take this one because there's a lot going on in this one. This is really this is really simple movie math. Okay, this is Spike Lee's Vietnam film, basically basically filtering Apocalypse Now and fusing it with Treasure of the Sierra Madre. That's what's going on here, and I'm gonna use that term those that term real specifically because this is as movie mad a movie as anybody's made in quite some time yes <laughs> this is a movie loaded with very specific references to uh, especially apocalypse now and a bunch of other vietnam films we haven't gotten too many vietnam films from the african-american perspective they exist they're out there dead presidents certainly was about that but this is uh Spike isn't, you know, Spike isn't. Uh, Spike isn't going to tackle just cultural history. He's gonna he's gonna tackle film history at the same time. And boy, this is one huge swing. And I'm so glad he's got Delroy Lindo there to hit clean up for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is it's it's five guys or gosh, no, four guys go back to Vietnam. Um, to five, it turns out to be. Five. It turns out to be five. It's, it's um, four guys who serve together, and yes. then there's a fifth. And then there's a fifth. Um, and they go back to Vietnam where they serve to uh, ostensibly bring back the remains of one of their one of their cohort, um, but also to find some gold that they they found and buried there. Um, Perry, do you get very excited when a new Spike Lee movie comes out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially if the buzz is good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I'm I was I was excited for this and it did not disappoint. I I really loved this movie. Um it is it is one of those movies where I don't think I saw a trailer beforehand. Maybe I did. Um but it didn't matter because this is a long, sprawling movie and about halfway through it hit a point where I thought everything was about to be over. And then I had to get up, use the restroom, so I hit pause and found out 
oh, there's a whole other hour and a half to this movie, and I don't know what <laughs> yes. that hour and a half is. And uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is a messy, long movie, and a lot of directors, I would get really frustrated by that. But I love it when Spike Lee films are this sprawling and long and, and even a bit messy, um, because it means he's got ideas he's playing with, and he's going to be throwing a lot of stuff. Um, I... Gosh, I don't even know where to start with this movie. So again, I'll let you start with this movie. Uh, as you said, the premise is is exactly that: four guys who served together in Vietnam under the tutelage of a uh, boy, just sort of the ultimate commanding officer, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> a commanding officer who gave them a reason to do what they were doing and uh, respected them, and who they thought the world of, uh, who died over there. They uh, they discovered that his the remains of his body might be able to be found based on new satellite footage and so yeah the first 20 minutes of this movie is the four of them back in vietnam for the first time and having dinner at a restaurant and you meet them all uh and front and center is delroy lindo playing uh, the angriest member of the group that's left he's now a trump supporter mm-hmm. uh <laughs> which is is just fantastic and uh and uh it's got it hits all of the beats it hits all the beats i expected it to hit and then it and then it hits a few more mm-hmm. just in the first 20 minutes uh which you know assured me that this was really going to be something special the first hour of this film is just riveting yeah. <laughs> i i dare say it's perfect uh through a this great long sequence where they're on a boat going down the river uh, again, absolutely an allusion to Apocalypse Now. There's a straight-up reference to Apocalypse Now in the first 30 minutes of the movie. Like, yep. they are there's there's an image of the Apocalypse Now poster or on a screen at a at a, at a dance party they're at. Like, it's there. There's no bones being made. Yeah. And he's not. Spike Lee isn't using it to reference anything. He's saying, "All right, I'm taking this on now." Uh, and the, there's this sequence where they're floating down the river. They float through a. Uh, a market more or less and there's a guy trying to sell a chicken and delroy lindo has uh, a post-traumatic stress disorder breakdown and it is uh it is terrifying it is so perfectly acted and uh it is uh, uh, just remarkably tense without there ever really being anything at stake like i don't think anything truly awful is going to happen but they have succeeded in making me feel his terror as well as the terror of everybody trying to protect him from himself. Uh, it's really something. It's one of the most effective post-Vietnam sequences I've ever seen in a movie. I don't mind saying that. Uh, and then there's another hour and a half <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> where, yeah. where we go even even wider out into the cosmos. And then, like you said, you paused and went to the bathroom and came back and suddenly found out you were watching Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. This happens in movies. You pause, you go, you come back, completely different movie happening. Yeah, that, that's true. Although most of the times I can, I can figure out where they're heading. And this was one where I'm like, I don't know what he's doing next. And I love that. Um, I, <laughs> you mentioned a lot, all the uh, references to Apocalypse Now. There's also, like you said, Treasure of the Sierra Madre's in there platoon there's also a lot of talk in this movie about how the movies about vietnam always are centered on white actors you know white characters oh yeah Uh, there's rambo um there's platoon and 
it, it really feels like this work of criticism, this film criticism work, to to take the images from those movies, the references to those movies, and put black actors front and center. And it reminded me of how he uh, how he treated Birth of a Nation in Black Klansman, and, and took that yep. and made the entire last half hour of that movie just a scathing work of film criticism to drain that movie of its power. And this is. This is him, you know, reclaiming those movies, reclaiming that genre. Um, and, and I thought that was very powerful, um, especially now, the climate we're in right now, to to see a movie that, you know, talks about forgotten history. Uh, the fact that they mentioned in this that, you know, the uh, the black community made up, what was it, 30 percent of the uh, fight, fighters in Vietnam. But they are 11 percent of the, you know, of the American demographics. And. It yeah. feels like he's having that conversation he's had throughout his whole career, and it's always so well done. But he's also delivering a movie that's very funny and thrilling and sometimes just flat-out terrifying. Um, yeah, I I loved what he was doing with that. Um, I can't remember the last time I saw a movie that was shot in Vietnam. And this is a gorgeous movie. There, there are there Oh, are, yeah. There are sequences in this film that I just, I again, I had to pause just to look at like these these swept fields that I are just like nothing I've seen recently on the screen, and, and just take them in because it is a gorgeous movie. Yes, like Apocalypse Now, it is <laughs> it is a sensuous experience, and that's been, you know, we it, it is easy to talk about Spike Lee's. Uh, what he supposedly wants to what he's wrestling with all the things we've talked about here in all of his films but you know I, I have said it before and I will say it again at some level he's the only modern filmmaker who at his heart kind of wants to be Vincent Minnelli like his films <laughs> just look great they're gorgeous they are gorgeous for the sake of being gorgeous and not in a way that is showy either just because that's how he sees it and that's what makes the moments of real ugliness in his films, all the more stark and all the more powerful. I mean, whether or what, you know, how aware of it he is, I don't know and don't really care. <laughs> I, I just, it's, I, I, it's always worked out that way. It's part of, it's, it's why do the right thing is as effective as it has always been. It's why Malcolm X feels like you've act, it's one of the few biopics where you actually feel like you've seen a whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, he's just so good at this. And yeah, coming on the heels of Black Klansman, and before that, Chirac, which is another absolute mess and a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. Chirac is the kind of film that that you know I, I don't think we I don't think we ever had this conversation. But if there's one thing criticism never needs, it's any sort of rating system for a movie. There shouldn't <laughs> be grades. There shouldn't be stars. There shouldn't be thumbs. All of that is pointless. Chirac is the kind of film that proves that. Now, I'm not going to say Chirac's good or that it works. But, oh, my God, I'm so happy he made it. <laughs> and there's so much in there <laughs> to chew on and to think about and with, with everything he does in that film. And to, to see, you know, he's – how old is Spike now? He's got to be in his 60s, right? I... And so you don't see too many filmmakers who still feel this vital and alive – really tackling really difficult stuff you know it's one of the reasons that you know i've loved this last decade from scorsese why mike nichols last decade was amazing to to see directors 
getting older and older and still have this power and this energy and this love of the form. It's, it's a really, it's the five bloods is, is a really great experience. If for no other reason than, Oh my God, have I missed Delroy Lindo? Have I mentioned how much I love Delroy Lindo enough in this, in this second? Oh, he he is. I love Delroy Lindo. I've always loved Delroy Lindo. And when I heard he was the lead in this, that was really when I went, Oh my God, I can't wait to see this. I cannot wait to see this. Oh, he's he's so good. Um, and it's again, it's one of those things where you see a character wearing a Trump hat and you think you know who that character is. And he is his character is so like by turns heartbreaking and sympathetic and hateful and hated. And like I, I just seesawed back and forth toward how I felt about him. Um, but Delroy Lindo just he has this monologue near the end. That is just he's staring at the camera the entire time, talking to the camera, talking to himself. But I just like I was I was riveted. It it was maybe the best moment of acting I've seen all year. Um, Yeah, he he's fantastic. (laughs) Uh, The actor who plays his son, um, whose name I am blanking on right now. So I am going to look it up because I want to make sure he gets credit. Um, Jonathan Majors, who. I have not seen in anything before, but I am seeing that he is uh, in The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is a movie that I am woefully behind on catching up on. Um, he's fantastic it's in this. It's very good. It's worth seeing. Um, he's fantastic in this. He is, you know, again, he's kind of the, this tag-along who shows up later, and uh, it's just a really complex relationship he has. Um, he has with Delroy Lindo's character. Uh, without revealing too much, but um, yeah, he's he's fantastic. The whole cast is great. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, this is a movie that grapples with really big ideas. There's there's history lessons peppered throughout. That um, you know, normally for me, when someone tries something like that, that stops the film dead for me. But he, you know, Spike Lee just does it in such a way that it's it just galvanizes everything else in the story. It, it just adds so much to have those reference points and that, that history. And it just propels the story further. Um, I actually rewatched do the right thing about two or three weeks ago. And that is just that, that, that might be a perfect movie. Um, and I just came away just wishing that more filmmakers had his energy and vitality in a movie that his movies just feel alive. That's why the mess doesn't bother me with Chirac because it's a movie that feels like it's having a dialogue right there with you at that second. And I think the five bloods feels the same way. It is. There are times where it's a little sprawling. It's a little messy, but I don't care because there is so much passion and energy behind it that I'm on board for wherever it's going. Uh, I think Black Klansman feels the same way. Yeah, I'm. I am. I'll be fair. I'm not sold that. I, I could be sold, but I'm not yet totally convinced that the two halves of this film truly inform each other in any sort of genuinely meaningful way that makes me rethink either of them any differently. <laughs> but I don't. I'm not saying this is a knock. I'm not saying this that it's a problem. Uh, it you know it just speaks to how how wide angle his camera mm-hmm. is <laughs> and all of this material and how much he is playing with uh, it's yeah it's not a problem it's just 
I, I don't know. You know, it does. It really does feel like two different movies to me. And I don't I don't know that they, they sandwich together real nicely. But, you know, if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't swirl together into one lovely pie, then let's call it a wonderful two layered cookie. Yes. That yes. I don't <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy eating. You know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, this is the way I often feel about Spike Lee movies is they are they are messes. And there are times where I don't really feel the connection points, but I have I walk away just buzzing after them. And it makes me happy to have watched them because of that. Um, I also really liked, I think this was out of necessity, but his choice to have the uh, older actors play themselves in the flashbacks, which was a very... I loved that too. Oh, such an interesting choice following The Irishman. Um, I love this because it does sell the idea that there is something about them that got trapped in Vietnam, that they are forever altered by that, and it, it just sticks with them. Um, I, I found that very powerful. I, I thought the um, he makes some allusions to modern events in in the final passage in a in, in a way that I found very powerful. Having turned off the news and then turned on this movie to to see some of the same images coming through. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, it felt it felt like it could have been made a week ago. And uh, I mean, his movies often feel like that. And uh, yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what else I can say without getting into spoilers, so I will just say I think this might be uh, my favorite movie experience I've had this year. Um, I I ended it. It was like 1130 at night, and I had to uh, kind of get up and walk around and walk the buzz off after the movie before I could go to sleep. Um, <laughs> I, I greatly enjoyed this one. And, uh, yeah, I mean, coming on the heels of Black Klansman and Chirac, it is just – great to have Spike Lee working in this period. I, I think he's still got as much energy and passion as he's had his entire career. And it's nice to know that uh old boy was not the, uh, <laughs> the end of Spike Lee. And it, honestly, the two films we've talked about today, I ended up watching them on back-to-back evenings. Oh, wow. And boy, it makes for a really fantastic double feature about processing trauma. If, hmm. if you need to go through that, it's, it's two films that deal with exactly that, just in very different ways and barring from very different cinematic traditions. But it was it was interesting to watch uh, watch that theme play out. I in had both not, those films. I had not even considered that. That is that is fantastic. Perry, we've reached the end of our episode. Um, some people might realize that we took a short break from our five from ninety five series. We will be back with our next episode which is where we will talk about the 1995 film Smoke. In the meantime, Perry, where can people find you? You can hear me on WLBY and the Lucy and Lance show every Friday morning talking about movies. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, Perry Loves Film. And, oh, you know, you can probably still hear me squealing with joy as I watch the Scorsese shorts DVD (laughs) from Criterion for like the millionth time. Which is also on the Criterion channel now. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Very happy when I saw that. It's not there for long, so get to it while you can. <laughs> you can find me at bhmpopculture.com, where my review of um, Irresistible just 
landed today. Uh, you can also read my thoughts on King of Staten Island there, uh, as well as my ongoing series on Steven Spielberg, which, uh, yes, Perry did hit a pothole with 1941. So I think yeah. my, thoughts, <laughs> my thoughts on that one, uh, I, I ended up pairing my thoughts on that one with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, because, <laughs> because it, it was a way to get through and, uh, yeah, I, I, that'll be out later this week as well, so you should be able to read that. Um, you can listen to me sometimes on my other podcast, Wasting Time, that has taken a bit of a uh, pandemic-related break, but I think we're uh, we're going to start doing some new episodes pretty soon, so I'm looking forward to that. And maybe eventually you can find me at a movie theater wearing a mask over my mouth at a 10 a.m. show as long as there's only two or three other people there. That's, uh, that's the comfort level we're at right now. <laughs> we will see you in a few weeks.